You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We appreciate being a part of your day and, well, what a day it's shaping up to be. There is still some chaos in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Jackie Fatka, Associate associate Editor at AgriPulse, will join us here in just a moment to discuss the impact of that on the agriculture industry. In segment two, we're going to go to Las Vegas virtually with Willie Volt. Willie Volt, Executive Director of Farm Progress. He's out there for the Consumer Electronics Show. And John Deere is the star of that show this year. He's going to give us an update from the CES. And in segment three, Scott Gurlt, economist for the American Soybean Association, will be joining us. We're going to talk through some of those announced crush plant expansions and where they sit here in that industry looking into 2023. And finally, we're going to close today's episode with a look at the markets. Those soybean prices are moving once again. Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics and Research will be joining us to end the show. Before we get to all of that, however, let's take this focus to Washington, D.C. And Jackie Fatka, we have been watching this vote for a speaker of the House of Representatives. And do we have one yet? Nope. It is now officially the longest uh time where they have not had a confirmed speaker. There was the 11th vote last night failed. They recessed until noon today, Friday. So we're still waiting. We're still waiting to to get that that first step across the finish line in the house. Well, it, when you say we're still waiting for that first step, Jackie, that's literal. Nothing is happening in the House of Representatives until this gets done. Is that right? Right. You know, and part of this discussion is uh, committee chairmanships and, you know, some of these holdouts are wanting specific concessions on uh, on who will be on what committee. And, and that's part of the holdup, right? We can't have any official committees named and chairmans, uh, uh, you know, all of their subcommittee chairs filled in. We do have that that G.T. Thompson is supposed to be the Pennsylvania uh, from Pennsylvania, the chair of the House Ag Committee. But again, this is really not the right foot for the Republicans to come into power to have four days now of, of votes that are not going how they should. And you mentioned G.T. Glenn Thompson, representative from Pennsylvania. He has been pushing his promise that we're going to get a farm bill done in 2023. But to do that, he had to hit the ground running. Jackie, are there any are the holdouts looking for any changes to the Ag Committee or is it off their radar? You know, I think the biggest, some of those big issues are, is just, um, you know, some of these concessions kind of make your head spin um, and and just kind of petty things too. Like some of the members are upset that McCarthy didn't give them a phone call after they won their primary. Um, it, you know, some of this is just um, politics and messy, still silly politics at that. Um, you know, and really they should have figured out a way to come up with a solution before January 3rd. So they could hit the ball running, right? You know, the Republicans have the opportunity and they still have the opportunity to come in and, and you know, their main priorities are still investigations of the current administration and how some previous funds were used and also uh, a more balanced budget, you know, taking a more fiscally
relatively conservative approach to funding the federal government. And so I think that's something that everybody in the Republican Party does support. And so this is, uh, unfortunately, a, a bump that's now become a hill, almost a mountain that that really did not need to be their first uh First controversy, but you know this this definitely impacts the future of the farm bill, right? We know that with this narrow margin in the House, that not all Republicans vote for a farm bill, and so by already we have these nineteen twenty Republicans who are not supporting the overall Republican Party. It, it does call into question whether you could get a, a vote across the finish line without having bipartisan support. Jackie, have either side floated another compromise candidate that could get ahead, or are the uh, big tent Republicans, I suppose, just committed to Kevin McCarthy? No, I mean, although Trump did get a vote yesterday, technically the rules, and I wasn't aware of that until this week, um, technically you don't have to be a member of the House. And so Trump was actually on one of the ballots yesterday. Somebody voted for a former President Trump to be the Speaker of the House. Only one vote. But uh, yeah, right now, no, I don't think that there's a lot of alternatives, which really that's the absurdity of this, right? We don't even have any other workable options right now. And so we're just in this weird standstill. We are in this weird standstill, but some things are still happening in D.C. The executive agencies are still at work. Jackie, does the holdup in the House disrupt any funding or progress for USDA, EPA, the other alphabet soup of agencies? Nope. I mean, they were all funded ahead of the the year. The, the, the last item of business for the last Congress, they were able to get that continuing resolution across the finish line, so that omnibus spending bill. So no, uh, you know, a big thing for ag, uh, you, we talked about Glenn Thompson. He's supposed to have a bipartisan listening session in his home state of Pennsylvania tomorrow. The largest indoor farm show, the Pennsylvania Farm Show, was kicking off, and he was hoping to have folks up for that. Members on both sides of the aisle, we had Shelley Pingree, we had uh, Panetta from California. So we had some bipartisan members who were actually going to be at a farm bill listening session, but now that's all back into question because... House members may still need to be voting on the floor tomorrow morning. All right. We'll continue to watch this House, uh, this Speaker of the House drama unfold there in D.C. But in the meantime, Jackie, we've also seen some electoral changes already ahead of 2024. A longtime advocate for agriculture won't be running again. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Senate Ag Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow announced yesterday that she will not be running for re-election. Uh, she was one of one of 23 of the 33 Senate seats that were Democrats were going to have to defend going into the next election. So definitely it was it was kind of weighted more towards Democrats having to defend a lot of their seats in that next election. Uh, and, and she's decided she's going to step down. She's been a great champion for agriculture. She's been through many farm bills, both of the chairwoman's spot as well as the ranking member. Uh, you know, really, too, as we look back over what happened the last two years, she championed the Inflation Reduction Conservation Funds for agriculture through that bill and, uh, you know, really was instrumental in, in increasing the Thrifty Food Plan in the SNAP program. Uh, and so definitely been uh, a, a huge advocate for agriculture. And, and we'll wait to see if she uses this as a uh, one last opportunity to put her stamp on farm programs, uh, you know, especially she's a, a big advocate of specialty crops. So she'll use this as another opportunity to further some of those changes to benefit that industry. 
or does this create another opportunity to to hold out until after she's gone? I mean, she is very determined. She is a very uh, hard negotiator, and for agriculture, you know, sometimes that is that has been good, but that's also contrary to what some of those house goals are on reduced spending. She's been able to bring a lot more money to a lot of those in agriculture. She has indeed and has worked with a lot of the different commodity groups. Jackie, is there another Democrat who could fill her shoes on the production ag side? You know, I, it, it, we'll wait and see. I mean, definitely uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. She ran for president. She is very, very uh, talented. Uh, whether she would want that or not, uh, you know, we also have Mike Bennett from Colorado. I mean, it all kind of will create some different shifts and who else gets elected. So we're still a little ways out on that. But there are some people I think would be good on the Dem side to take over her reins if needed. All right. We'll continue to watch all of these various dramas unfold. Jackie Fatka, Associate Editor at AgriPulse. Thanks for joining us today. Great chatting with you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk technology with Willie Vote of Farm Progress when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. 
You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're going to turn our focus over to technology. Right now, the largest technology event is happening out in Las Vegas, and ag and technology are no stranger to one another. But this year, at the CES event, ag took center stage. Joining us for an update on what all is going on out there in Las Vegas is Willie Vogt. He's the editorial director at Farm Progress, covers a lot of technology issues. And Willie, thanks for joining us today. Looking forward to it, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Now, let's talk about this keynote presentation opening. CES this year was John Deere. Willie, what did they bring to this event? Well, first of all, I think the point, and going back to 2019 when Deere first came to CES in a big way, uh, is to tell the story uh, that agriculture has already been thoroughly technology-oriented uh, for a long time, which was a surprise to a lot of people in 2019. Uh, they keep pushing that message, and this year they finally got to put that message to center stage, opening the opening keynote for the official opening day of uh, CES here in Vegas. Uh, and they took the opportunity to share their leadership in computer vision systems, their leadership in GPS, geolocation, all the things. What's really funny is sitting through this keynote address, a farmer would not be surprised by everything John May, Julian Sanchez, Deanna Kovar, and Jamie Hindman said. Not a thing. They would like, and so I'm writing the story from that yesterday, and it's kind of like, well, you all know this, but nobody in the room did, and that was exciting. And I thought that was a great way to tell the story. And they they really shocked the audience a couple of times, and that was kind of fun. Absolutely, and you know, as you say, this stuff is kind of old hat to those of us in agriculture. But the crowd at CES, I know you've been out several times and before for this event. Willie, tell us who is the crowd at CES? Who is John Deere talking to when they're at an event like this? Well, they're not talking to farmers. Let's be clear on that, and that's part of the point. You know, I did a podcast last week with um, the the company about this and why they go, and they're there to tell agriculture story outside of the normal place to get to people who don't know. The audience at CES is a wide range of retailers who sell technology, developers for autonomous cars, autonomous systems, um, people who are in tech at the university level looking at new ways to do new things, doctors, lawyers, industry analysts, really smart people who don't know that much about what what most people in agriculture take for granted every day with the way we use technology, which is kind of fun. I mean, one of the coolest things they did during the event was um, there's the, the whole stage was a screen. Now, when I say that, the stage was over 100 feet wide. Wow. The screen stage was. So at one point, they put up a picture of the new Sea and Spray Ultimate sprayer with the boom fully open on the screen. And Doc, uh, Doc, uh, Julian Sanchez said, this is the sprayer in actual size that is the cool. crowd yeah the crowd went kind of crazy on that 
Now, even though John Deere wasn't here to address a farm crowd, they're not talking to a lot of folks who are out there turning the soil black year in and year out. Willie, they still made some new product announcements. What was it that John Deere is unveiling at CES? Well, that was kind of fun and kind of a surprise, which, you know, we chided them about at dinner last night. But anyway, um, they ex introduced Exact Shot. Um, you, you know, the Exact Emerge planter is always, was already the first large-scale high-speed planter. There were others in the market before Deer came, but Exact Emerge made a statement when that was introduced several years ago. It's dropping precision seed at speed. Well, they're looking at the uh, sustainability issues and they're looking at being more precise and they turned to the idea of starter fertilizer. You know, do we need to fill the entire furrow with fertilizer or what if we just put this, drop the fertilizer right on the seed? And I'm going to talk to them today in more detail because sometimes you want fertilizer right ahead or behind, you know, that kind of thing. But and that's what they're going to do. And they talked about they could reduce the use of uh, starter fertilizer by, I think, 50 percent, somewhere in that range, wow. and yet provide that jump to the seed. Yeah. So the idea being, instead of laying down a continuous stream of fertilizer in some position relation to the seed, it's only going to shoot it on a tiny little area over where the seed is laid. Is that how they unveiled it? Yeah, that's how they unveiled it. And, you know, they had to explain that to the crowd, you know, backing up and explaining that, you know, uh, there were some interesting numbers about how many seeds are planted in a second on a 24 row planter, that kind of stuff. And so the precision on this is pretty cool, but also it's kind of logical. We already know where that seed is on its way down the, the tube to the ground. And so knowing that position with vision system, they can decide when to shoot the uh, product into the furrow, which was cool. It certainly is. And I understand we're continuing to see that focus on electric battery powered equipment. John Deere brought some new to the something new to the table on that front as well, didn't they? Yeah, and I'm going to have an added comment about two, but they introduced uh, an electric compact excavator. So more into the construction market. Compact excavators are very popular in that area and electric models are coming out for many players in that segment, often because they're used in urban areas where quiet is a good thing. But I want to back up and make a bigger comment about a statement Deere made. Uh, the chief technology officer at Deere, Jamie Hindman, started his conversation explaining why you are not going to see high horsepower electric tractors anytime soon. And that the industry will be looking at the use of biofuels, whether it's renewable diesel, ethanol, renewable natural gas, other tools to maintain high horsepower agriculture. And he wanted to make that statement because he explained that to the crowd. It might be counter to their thinking. I mean, you're at a trade show where, um, I'm sorry, Mike, I've run out on the number of names of new electric cars I keep running across at this show. And so there's electric stuff everywhere. And yet he stood up and he made this comment. And the point being, and I guess the point is, Deere introduced that ADAR automated tractor last year at CES, the plow with the, the tillage tool attached. He explained yep. that that machine runs 14 hours a day. If that machine were to run 14 hours a day as an electric machine at the same horsepower, because right now it runs at about 310 horsepower, 75% of its rated horsepower when it's working. To do the same thing, you would need 40, was something like 48 battery packs from Tesla Model 3 cars or Whoa. something like that. You would add thousands of pounds to the tractor. And it, the list of things that make that not work were bit, were paramount in what he talked about. So it sounds like he was kind of outlining this pending split in the industry, big high horsepower stuff, still potentially using a liquid fuel of some sort, and then the smaller, more portable stuff going battery. Is that the direction you sensed? Yeah, that's pretty much what I sense right now. And I've had those conversations with Deere and other companies. Um, 
there are debates about maybe we'll end high horsepower farming and go to smaller machines that are electric. And there are markets where that might play out. I don't know what we'll see. Oh, you're not going to see that in corn country for a while. All right, Willie. But I know you've also been browsing some of the other exhibits and seeing what's out there. And it's, it's not just farm related. There are some things that we can bring more broadly into rural America. What have you seen on the healthcare side? And agriculture is the changing rural healthcare situation. Closing clinics, closing hospitals, right? Um, the opportunity here is that there's a, an advancement in remote healthcare tools, high-end tools that are at your house, blood pressure cuffs that can report your blood pressure, uh, um, evaluation tools that can measure your heart rate, EKG, other things, and using artificial intelligence can maybe alert your doctor that you know maybe you need to go in. But instead of racing to the hospital whenever you have a problem, knowing what your problem might be, and also allows uh, one doctor in a hospital to manage many more patients more efficiently. This kind of technology is coming, and I see that it has a promise to maintain a good quality of uh, healthcare in rural and distant areas. Absolutely. And it will be interesting to see that come out. Willie, of course, you're still learning about all of this, still out there in Las Vegas, but you'll be bringing this insight back and you'll be joining us at the Farm Futures Business Summit later on this month, won't you? Boy, I couldn't. I mean, I wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> that is fantastic. And of course, Willie, when and where is that event happening this year? Oh, well, we kick off the Farm Futures Summit first with the Farm Futures Ag Finance Boot Camp on January 18th. So not very soon. And then on Thursday, January 19th, and on the 20th, we have the full Farm Futures Summit. I mean, we're, we're going to have some great stuff. You've got Dr. David Cole will be there. Jolene Brown will be there. Rob Sake will be there. He's an uh, industry expert on a lot of things. We're also going to have this fascinating conversation between our colleague, Max Armstrong, and Howard Buffett about what's going on with agriculture in Ukraine, which is a constantly changing issue and one that I think farmers will really enjoy hearing more about. I think you're right. And I've spoken with Max a little bit about his conversations with Howard. He's been over there several times since the war has started. He's seen the the hardship that those Ukrainian farmers are operating under. Yeah, just bringing it home, I think, is going to be interesting. Willie, where can folks get more information about the Farm Futures Business Summit? Well, the best place to go is farmfuturesummit.com. You can get your hotel room there. You can buy your ticket. And for those of you that don't feel you can travel, you know, depending on your situation, there is a virtual option and that uh, you should check that out as well so that you can watch it and also have access later to uh, the broadcasts from that event so we kind of got a hybrid show i prefer to be there in person i've always found that to be better after having done virtual ces in 2020 uh 2021 uh, i never want to do that again but so live it's great for me it certainly is folks get that on your calendar we've been speaking with willie vote editorial director at farm progress and willie thank you so much for the update on ces have fun out there in las vegas Good to be with you, Mike. Take care. And folks, stay with us. We're going to talk soybeans with Scott Gurlt of the American Soybean Association when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different 
differing cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. At the opening bell this morning, all three grains were up on crop concerns in Argentina as their weather is still continuing to be drought-stricken. Temperatures in Argentina are expected to be near 100 degrees Fahrenheit the next five days, adding stress to those crops that have had occasional but insufficient rains. The forecast remains mostly dry with light rains expected later next week. Now, Buenos Aires Grain Exchange said that 13% of Argentina's corn crop was rated good to excellent. That's down from 15% last week. While their soybean ratings of good to excellent have dropped two percentage points from 10 to 8%. Meanwhile, though, the soybean crop that is three times the size of Argentina's crop is getting closer to harvest in Brazil. Central and northern Brazil continue to receive plentiful rains while conditions in southern Brazil have been drier. Overall, favorable conditions in Brazil and drought in Argentina is increasing the crush incentive for U.S. soybean processors even more, but it won't be long before Brazil's harvest slows down U.S. export activity. USDA's weekly export sales were disappointing overall, but they did report that 4.4 million bushels of corn were sold to Mexico over the two seasons and 4.85 million bushels of beans to unknown destinations. We saw 12.6 million bushels of corn sold for export last week. 30 million bushels of corn were shipped last week, bringing total commitments to 856 million bushels. That's down 47% from a year ago. And unlike U.S. corn prices, March corn in China has closed higher nine consecutive days, ending at the U.S. equivalent of $10.66 today. While for the beans, USDA did say that 26.5 million bushels were sold for export last week. 54.3 million bushels of beans were shipped, bringing total commitments to 1.61 billion bushels. That is up 5% from a year ago. And despite those ongoing concerns about a possible record soybean crop on the way from Brazil, the trend in January beans does still remain up with national soybean basis that remains near its strongest in nine years. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. 2022 saw the focus of the world onto a number of different commodities. We saw with the Russia-Ukraine fight, the globe focused in on oil. We saw rising energy prices around the world. With that same battle, we saw disruption to the global oils trade, veg oils as well, and we saw soybeans, soybean oil move into the fore as a way to help grapple with higher food prices, higher energy prices, all of that. And it really inspired a lot of enthusiasm for domestic crushing here in this country. As we turn the calendar to the new year, I figured it was time to check in on the soybean industry from a macro perspective. And to help us do that, Chief Economist for the American Soybean Association, Scott Girl, joins us today. And Scott, thanks for making time to talk. Scott, thanks for making time to talk. Oh, uh, happy to, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You know, let's talk about what we're seeing here in the crush space domestically. Scott, how has American soybean crushing been over this past year? Oh, it's, you know, it's been great. Um, very strong crush numbers, expanding crush. You know, we're in the mid-20s um, for a number of uh, announcements of new or expanding crush plants. Um, but really, I, I kind of divide things into before December 1st of last year and after um, because it's a different outlooks between the two periods. I, I think everything was very optimistic before December 1st, um, but on that day, EPA released their renewable volume obligations for the ne- uh, their proposed obligations for the next three years, and those had almost no growth um, it, for biomass-based diesel, which is what renewable diesel would fit into. Um, so I think that's thrown a lot of things up in the air, really. Um, we'll get the final numbers from them in, in June, but if you know if they stick to that, if there's really almost no growth um, in in what can be blended, then it does start to call a lot of things into question. Um, and so we have seen crush margins come down since then. I mean, they're, they're still at strong levels, um, but we saw soybean oil prices drop, oil prices go up, um, and so you know. I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if we start hearing some pause on some some of these plants um, due to the uncertainty because really a lot of this crush is destined for the renewable diesel market. Um, so it's so I, I really divide it there. So I, I, you know there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but I think there's also a lot of caution in this current time period as we try to work with EPA um, to get this straightened out. Okay, it is going to be a balancing act here for for this market as it moves forward. And Scott, I'm wondering then, as you take a look at what was happening prior to December 1st, the enthusiasm in the industry there before EPA's announcement, what was driving it? Was it elevated food prices? Was it this push towards renewable diesel? Where did you see it coming from? I think a lot of the expanded crush was because of renewable diesel. I mean, vegetable oil prices were high for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I'll be clear about that. You had um, Indonesia, uh, uh, banning palm oil exports, you know, that's one of the top exporters. You had a poor South American soybean crop, so, you know, they were short on oil, poor uh, can, uh, Canadian canola crop. And so there, there was, well, and sunflower oil as well out of Ukraine um, essentially shut off. And so if you looked across all the major veg oils in the world, there were issues, um, which is driving up the prices. But I think what was really driving a lot of the demand or the supply growth in the U.S., this crush is is all of the um, renewable diesel plants that have been announced to come online. Um, you know, those other factors I mentioned are temporary factors, but the renewable diesel plants are investment into longer-term demand growth for soybeans. And um, some of those 
renewable diesel plants were announced as joint ventures um, with soybean oil or soybean processors. Um, so that that was really, I think, the impetus for a lot of the growth. Um, and so that you know that's kind of why we're a little concerned about the EPA announcement is because if that's the demand or the driver for the demand, uh, if you pull that back, is will there still be the demand for the soybean oil in the long run? Um, you know, but but that's kind of where we're coming from on that. Okay. And, you know, you talk about increasing the crush capacity, growing those plants, making that kind of fixed investment. That indicates a fairly sustained level of demand that could be out there in the in the uh, countryside. Scott, to that end, thinking about the planned announcements and expansions that we had over this past year, how much, if they all were to come to fruition, how much would that grow our domestic soybean crush? Do you know? About, about a third um, is what it would be. It'd be around... If they all came online, it would be about 700 uh, million bushels a year. Um, so it's, it's a fairly, it's a very significant amount. Um, you, you know, and even under the best of scenarios, they may not have all been built anyway. Um, but yeah, it's it's very significant growth. And you know, like you're mentioning, that's I mean, for the farmers that are local to those crushed plants, I mean, that's a very helpful effect on the basis. It's going to be there for a long time. Um, so that's why it's such a great opportunity is. It is a long-term investment into the industry that will work to help farmers with their bottom line. Absolutely, but it's got to have those tailwinds. It has to be an investment that makes sense. And a lot of these plants, as you mentioned, Scott, they were looking for confirmation from the EPA that biodiesel, biomass-based diesel was going to be a profitable alternative. Let's talk then about this proposed rule under the RFS. What, how much did EPA shortchange the renewable biodiesel industry? Quite a bit, uh, to be honest. I, I actually just wrote an article yes, about it yesterday that's on their website. Um, so, you know, they were allowing for about 60 to 70 million gallons a year in growth um, over the next few years, whenever the industry has announced billions of gallons of growth. Um, and so it's, you know, we're talking about essentially billions in shortfalls. I mean, the industry is already producing more than the blending obligation and is looking to expand. So it's, it's quite a, it's, it's a very significant amount um, of, of differential there. And, and um, you know, EPA's reasoning was they, they looked at USDA's baseline and looked at the soybean oil growth in that and said that's what will be available. However, USDA's baseline has to assume no policy changes, which means no increase in those blending obligations. So essentially EPA is looking at a scenario that has no increase in the blending obligations and using that to say, well, we can't justify increasing the blending obligations. Um, so it's kind of a very, well, it's a very circular reasoning to, to get to where they are right now. It is very circular reasoning. And Scott, it sounds like the kind of thing that if one were to point out to the folks at EPA that, hey, it looks like this is maybe what you did here on this decision, it should be an easy fix. Has that conversation happened yet with EPA or is it ongoing? It's, it's in the process. So EPA is holding a listening session at the beginning of next week. Um, we have many of our farmers that are affected by this testifying. I will be testifying. Uh, we'll be submitting comments as well as having conversations directly with EPA uh, and other government organizations. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, that's the good thing about having, um, you know, the trade associations here is, you know, we can't work with them on this and hopefully um, get them to understand what's going on because it, you know, like you were mentioning at the beginning, there's a lot of momentum in the industry, and it's been very exciting to see. It's long-term growth for the farmers, um, but it's you know it could a lot of it could be put on pause um, just because of an assumption 
um, a rather hidden assumption that was buried into this. Scott, I'd like to talk through the economics of the lack of RVO support for biodiesel producers. You mentioned there's been a ton of enthusiasm. There's been a lot of momentum on the private side, private companies saying, hey, we want to limit our carbon footprint. So we want to go engage in some of these renewable uh, biodiesels, biofuels. Will they still be allowed to do that if crush capacity expands or or will they be cut out of that market without an increase in the RVO level? Right. So there's nothing preventing them from going out and producing. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's not a problem. The, the issue gets to be um, the economics of it. It does cost more to produce uh, biodiesel and renewable diesel than it does petroleum diesel. Um, you know, there's, there's an unpriced benefit with those biofuels that they lower carbon intensity. Um, and, and so that's why we have this policy. And so really, unless we have growth in the policy, well, it can be produced it's not economical anymore. Um, and that's why, you know, we'd see the slowdown um, in, in build out of the facilities if, if um, those plants still can't slow down at this point. Um, and so, I, you know, there's really three things that, that support um, those biofuel margins. It's, it's the federal uh, renewable fuel standard. It's the tax credit, which was just extended in the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's state policies. Um, a lot of renewable diesel is going to California for their low carbon fuel standard, which they are actually looking at capping the amount of vegetable oil that can go in there right now too. Um, they're taking comments on that. So What's their theory there. behind that, Scott? Um, they have several reasons. Uh, one is um, you know, they're, they're concerned about potential land use impacts, which the, the, the ironic thing about that is their scoring methodology already accounts for that. And that's one thing we're definitely pointed out. Um, and they have some concerns over food and fuel issues um, but, you know, the uh, United Soybean Board just had a study commissioned by Purdue University. Uh, and what a lot of groups are failing to understand is that soybean oil is only one product out of soybean. It's only about 20%, the other 80% is meal. And so what the study out of Purdue found is that once you include the lower meat prices, um, with that said, that impact on food inflation is almost nothing. It's 0.05% if you increase soybean oil use for biofuels by 20%. Um, so very okay. Okay. All right, Scott. And so uh, we don't have a whole lot longer left with you, but you have written, as you mentioned, in depth on the RVO levels and the proposal from EPA. Listeners, if you want to check that out, you can read Scott's Economist Angle at SoyGrowers.com. It's under the News Releases tab. And Scott, when is that final rule, the final RVO rule, expected to be finalized? June fourteenth. Um, so you know we have another five, five and a half months here um, to work on this, and hopefully we'll get a little more certainty at that time. And hopefully you right. will kind of will realize what's going on. Yeah, hopefully the, the folks who are pointing it out will get the job done. We can see those changes come by June. Thank you so much. Scott Gerlt, Chief Economist at the American Soybean Association. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk markets in detail with Mike Zuzlo of Global Commodity Research and Analytics with AOA Returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. 
Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Aaron Rogie, Senior Product Manager, CHS Refined Fuels Marketing, to learn more about the benefits of using a premium diesel formula. Aaron, I've got to imagine those benefits filter through to the end user. What do you expect your users to benefit from as these changes get rolled out? The first benefit to our customers is knowing that the fuel that they purchase will be ready clean and operate as it should when they need it. So whether or not they're storing it in a tank or it sits in their equipment during an off season, because of the enhancements in the detergency, the water management, the filterability, the biostability, as well as um, storage stability, the integrity of their fuel won't be compromised by any um, contaminants or environmental elements. Beyond that, we also know that these enhancements will lead to less downtime, uh, whether that be downtime through clogged, fouled injectors um, or, you know, a need to constantly change fuel filters due to um, 
contaminants that are getting stuck in those while they're moving through their fuel system. When a producer, a fleet operator, a construction manager needs that equipment up and running, they need it up and running. They can't have it sitting on the sidelines. So providing a cleaner uh, burning fuel that keeps your system cleaner and your parts better maintained minimizes downtime. And, and that's really the end game. That's what we're trying to provide to our customers. Absolutely. This equipment doesn't do us any good if it's not running. We've right. been speaking with Aaron Rogie, Senior Product Manager at CHS Refined Fuels Marketing. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues this morning, and it seems fitting after our last conversation with Scott Gurlt there, the chief economist of the American Soybean Association, that today's market conversations should start in the soybean pits. Joining us for that discussion is Mike Zuzolo. He's founder of Global Commodity Analytics and Research. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Mike, thanks for having me back, sir. Let's talk about this ongoing ping pong ball move in the soybean market. We've been up 15, down 15. We're clinging to that $15 mark, Mike, it would appear. Yeah, and I think this is where it goes back to what we've seen since we've come back from the new year is, is a push in the market to the downside led by the crude oil, led by the bean oil. And in the midst of that, the soy meal has stood up and said, I'm not having any of this and I'm going to keep going and driving towards the $500 per ton level uh, as I get ready to go off the board, January meal goes off on the 13th, Mike. And so the product markets are giving very strong mixed signals to the soybean complex. And I think what we saw this week was soybeans finally decided to throw in the towel with the wheat and with the corn. And on Thursday's trade, we went down to the 52 week moving average and tested that. That's a big number, that 1460, 1465 area in January and March beans. Very, very important, especially heading into and after the January 12th crop report, in my view, because you've got January soy meal at a sharp premium versus soon to be lead month, March, and you've got the same thing working in the bean oil as well. So that inversion in that both product markets would suggest the meal is more correct than the bean oil. So we need beans at this point because they're our demand leader, especially in the product markets. And I think corn and wheat are really looking to the beans and the soy complex as a whole for some real leadership here. You know, in those product markets, it's always been said, I suppose the conventional wisdom is a bean rally can't last if it's led by oil. It needs meal to start the run. Does this transfer of, of interest back towards meal maybe indicate some longer term strength for soybeans? I think it does, but I think we also have to be very careful about what's going on in China. And the best thing that I can report to you today when it comes to directly what you're asking is we just made a new five month high in the offshore Chinese yuan against the US dollar. And so their buying power is increasing and that helps offset a lot of the negativity that build up after the holiday 
about this COVID wave that they're having. And, you know, some of the private forecasters that do analytics on the healthcare side, one out of London in particular, was referenced in Bloomberg on Thursday and said they could be up to 25,000 deaths per day by the end of January. That's something like 2.25 million after three months of that, Mike. So I think those kind of numbers really had to get translated into the price action here this week. And that's why we took a lot of the green away from the market that we put in right before the new year. Mike, that makes me wonder. I've seen some interesting activity in the hog market this entire week. Would that also, in your mind, be tied to what's developing in China? Mike, I was wondering, would the, the move we've seen over the past week in the hog market as well, would that be tied into what's developing in China? Well, hey, folks, it seems as though we have lost Mike Zuzalo. Mr. Zuzalo, did we get you back in? I should be here. Hey, we've got you there, sir. I was going to ask you the moves we've seen this past week in the hog market. Do you see that as tied into what's developing in China as well? Yeah, I see that as kind of what we talk about in my language is the pork and bean trade, Mike, the hedge funds, the managed money funds probably joined up together and took both hogs and beans down. And and I think we tried to balance that out again on Friday, although the weekly export sales, the negative numbers, net reductions for both pork and beef, not good numbers, probably going to keep us on the defensive uh, in the next few days to be able to have to price that in. Mike, you mentioned cattle there. Take a look at that market for me. Have we seen any cash trade develop yet this week? Not a lot. I think there's a lot being done probably in the negotiated market around that 156, 157 level. It would be my guess, Mike. I think the big thing in the cattle market is as we come back to the new year, a lot of pull, a lot of uh, 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 pulling and a lot of sale barns out there suggesting to me that the champagne bottles can get uncorked with the feeders, especially in that 23 is going to be a great year. I, I would only caution that the cycles are suggesting something otherwise as we get into 2023. I would also say a lot of cattlemen looking for the 2014-2015 price highs. You had 111 to 130 dollar hogs back during that time period supporting you. You had 320, 360 corn supporting you. We're a long way from those numbers right now. So I'm trying to tamp down the real bullish enthusiasm as we come into this new year in the cattle market. All right, Mike, well, tamp down my enthusiasm for the cattle market. As you look at those cycles, what are you watching that has you concerned timing wise? Well, we have a very strong price cycle along with a very strong supply cycle and the market usually moves ahead of the supply, the supply reduction that we expect in 2023. And, and if you go back six, seven years, you can see this pretty much every six to seven years. And, you know, compliance would say, don't rely upon cycles. I agree with that wholeheartedly, but it's still something to watch. And I think the trade is getting ready to price in a supply low in 2023. And I want to be there if I can for my ranchers to have some pricing done, some hedging done, probably as soon as Q1 would be my guess, Mike. And that's on the fat side. Uh, what are you looking on the feeder side for folks who might be buying out later this year? Yeah, great question. I think if you look at the long-term charts, you look at the cash feeder prices and you, you look at the $200 plus prices we're seeing in the feeder markets right now, the feeders need to hold in there. And I think the soybeans and the feeders are kind of similar in that the fat cattle need the feeders to stay strong. So if I would see feeders go below 180, I'd get real nervous about the feeders. Otherwise, I'm going to let them run a little bit longer. So I'm really looking at the fats right now. All right, Mike, on the outside markets, the job data out this morning, supportive for cattle markets going forward? 
Yeah, I think the jobs data in terms of the wages is a little bit of a question mark in, in terms of the wage gains weren't as much and those factory orders numbers just came out and, and those came out down 1.8% for November. Trade was expecting better than that. Now, the good side of that is the dollars reversed and it's making new lows after making new highs early in the session. So I'm hoping we stay weaker on that dollar. Indeed, that would be a nice tailwind for the commodity markets, folks. We've been talking with Mike Zuzalo, founder of Global Commodity Analytics and Research. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Mike, thank you so much. And folks, tune in next time to AOA. We'll talk with Dr. Paul Suttenberg about emerging swine diseases. We'll also get a weather update from John Baranek. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station.